have you ever picked a place that is your oasis to get away from digital problems or work problems or family problems or problems at, at you know, school, wherever it may be? Is, it a, is, it a, is there a spot? Have you found a spot that you say, this is my spot, this is my place, this is where we go, and it's just a real refreshing place? And just get rebuilt. For some people, it might be, you know, the store where you can shop. And that's refreshing. For others of us, that is not refreshing. For some of you, it might be getting in your car and driving up towards the Poconos. And you find that really refreshing. For me personally, there's one place that I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. And I find it refreshing just pulling into that area with the city limits. I just feel like, whoa, leave everything behind. You guys wouldn't know where this is. But it's Williamsburg, yes, I absolutely, because I can go back and pretend, you know, in a different century. But you have those places. You have those situations where, and it could be your house. It could be, it could be you know, going and visiting some other relative's house. But there's times where you just need to be refreshed. Genesis 21, Abraham finds that place. Abraham comes in this story, and he develops a, a spot, if you would, where it's his spot where he can just kind of cool down, calm down. And it's the city, it's the town, it becomes the, it becomes the city in time. It's Beersheba. You ever hear Beersheba in Scripture? Some might say Beersheba, might say Beersheba. They will pronounce it different ways. But it shows up in the Old Testament on several different occasions. And especially in the book of Genesis, this little, this little oasis, and that's, where, that's what it is when Abraham finds it and picks this place. It shows up in, uh, in statements like this in the Old Testament, from, ba- from Dan to Beersheba. That's because it's the lowest part of the tribe of Israel, uh, Judah's territory. And it's the lowest southern border. You have statements where... Beyond Genesis 21, you have the same thing. This is the same spot that his son Isaac will come to in about 20 years, and God is going to meet him there, and God's going to reconfirm the entire covenant with him. This is the spot when Jacob is met by the Spirit of the Lord and told, it is okay to move down into Egypt. Your son Joseph is alive, and you can go down there, and I'm giving you permission. At that moment, uh, Jacob and his entire clan is living at this well site, at this oasis. That's their home spot at that moment. This is where Elijah, after he has that conflict with um, Ahab and Jezebel, uh, and they do the mountaintop experience where the uh, prophets of Baal and 850 prophets of Baal, they have a competition with Elijah to call down fire. And you remember that whole story? It ends up that Elisha calls down the fire and then they throw the other prophets off the mountaintop and the revival takes place. And then he gets the note from Jezebel that says, you're going to be like those prophets. By tomorrow, I'm going to have you killed. And he runs. And the first place he runs to is Beersheba. And he parks there for a bit and then he runs into the wilderness further where God meets him at the mountain, and then you have the wind, the fire, and the earthquake that takes place. In Genesis 21 is the first time we're introduced to this area, this oasis, that becomes um, a favorite haunt, a favorite rest spot for the, the, for the patriarchs. And when we come into the story, what's interesting is it doesn't start off being a restful spot. In fact, it starts off at being a spot where Abraham is interested to park, to be able to refresh, to be able to regroup. But while he's doing that, he's going to get hammered. He's going to find some trials that take place. And so as we just go through the story and just highlight some things, we start off in chapter 21 
And we have his, uh, first, uh, his first encounter, his first activity, his first development here at the land of Beersheba. He gets challenged to make sure that he has harmony within his home life. Now we looked at this story last week, so I'm not going to reiterate a whole lot. But the story starts off with really good news. You read in verse 1, it says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord gave unto Sarah as he had spoken, she conceived, and she bears a son to Abraham in his old age at that time. They called the name of the son Isaac. So the good news is great. They have the child, the child that's been promised some 25 years earlier. Finally, God gives them the child. They're both thrilled. They're excited. It's Everything is going great. The baby is growing, and the baby is, has gotten through all this period of those being up in the middle of the night, which your moms know about, and the baby has come to point where he's mature enough that he's ready to be weaned and then they have bad news. The bad news in the story is his older brother the brother that we know as Ishmael who had been birthed by a surrogate uh, pregnancy the one who who is the child of Abraham and Sarah's handmaid Hagar he is jealous. He now sees that Isaac is probably going to take the inheritance. That, that dad favors Isaac more than him. And so Ishmael's being a teenager. He is just struggling so much. And God says to, uh, to Abraham, there's got to be a break here. You're going to have to send your son away from home. That's because mom, mom the, the real mom of the household, the head mom of the household, Sarah, is saying, I want him out. I want him out. He's a teenager. Get him out of the house. And Abraham's brokenhearted. He's grieved, as the passage says, as you read. He doesn't want to send away Ishmael. But God says you have to send him away. To get harmony in your home, it's time that he leaves the home. And so he goes and packs up the boy's bag, and he says, off you go. And we read in the text that he sends away the mom and the child. And look at down verse 14. It says, Abraham rose up early in the morning, took the bread, the bottle of water, gave it to Hagar, that's the boy's mom, putting it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. She departed and wandered where? Where's the area that she wanders to? Okay, same spot, but she's going into farther into the wilderness around it. It's not the oasis. It's not the site where the city is eventually founded, but it's in the region. So she's going into the countryside. She's going into the county of Beersheba, not the town, but the county of it. So she's in Lebanon County, not in the city of Lebanon. And so there she goes traveling, and God's going to take care of And the story unfolds that God takes care of mom and son as they wander, and they get thirsty, and God provides water for them. And you read that in the next few moments. God took care of him. And our point is that as hard as it was, he had to create harmony. There was a challenge. There was a, there was a conflict that took place. And it happens sometimes, even in homes of godly people, as we said last week, that you get these tensions, you get these conflicts, and we have to follow God's word. And sometimes it's very difficult. But our goal is to make sure that we have peace and harmony. Then, right after that, there's another story that takes place. And it happens at Beersheba. This one is not his private home life. This is his public life. This is where I want to focus this evening. Where in the next part of the chapter, there's a conflict that arises at work, out in the public arena. We start reading about the conflict as we go in and continue. It says in verse 22, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear unto me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness that I have done unto you, you shall do unto me, and to the land wherein you have sojourned. And Abraham says, I will swear. What's going on here? What do those verses basically say? 
This Abimelech is the same guy that showed up a couple chapters ago. Do you remember the story when Abraham first met him? Abraham came into the region called Gerar, which is in that same area, and Abraham had a fear of Abimelech because Abimelech is a, um, a force. He's even got a general, so you know that he's a powerhouse in that time. What was Abraham afraid of when he first came into Gerar? This is like three chapters ago that they would kill him and take, take Sarah, his wife. And so he says to Abimelech, she isn't my wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, and again, we, it could be by, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it could have been by the attraction or it could be because that he wanted an alliance, which I'm kind of more inclined to think. And he said, okay, I'm going to take her and make her part of my harem. And that whole story we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it unfolds that she's in the harem, and I think for a period of time, because the passage says that none of the ladies in that, in that whole community were able to bear children. And it had to take weeks for them and possibly months for them to figure that out. And so there is that, that time that then Abimelech is told by God that Abraham has lied to you. That's his wife, not just his sister, and Abimelech has to go back to Abraham. And so Abimelech has to say, Abraham, why did you treat me so? You know, is she not your wife? And then they have some interaction and exchange. By the way, do you think Abimelech is still thinking about it by what he says now? Did you catch a phrase in here? When I was reading, he said in verse 23, Now therefore swear unto me here by God that you will not deal what? Falsely with me. In other words, don't, don't lie to me again. Okay? I want to have this peace treaty. I want to be able to have an alliance with you. I want to be able to have harmony with you. And I want to make a pact. I want to make a deal with you. And the reason that he's motivated to do that is he makes this comment. He says that, he, that there's a reason is for that is God is with you. Again, notice this man who is of a pagan religion. He makes the comment, God is with you in all that you do. How come he says that? What is, what is the significance that would cause him to look at Abraham and say, Abraham, I want a treaty with you because God is with you? What, think about what's happened in the last few chapters. Is there anything in the last few chapters that would scare you when you say God is with this guy? Well, Isaac's the positive, is he not? Because he knows that Abraham, who is 100 years old, is having a child, and Abimelech would know about this because Sarah had been in his harem. So he knows that this miracle has taken place. He knows that the ladies in his own, in his own, his own concubines, that God had closed the wombs, had protected Sarah. So he knows that there's a miracle child involved, that God has got a special hand upon Abraham. Anything else that he might know about Abraham's history that would cause him to say, I don't want to get on the bad side of this guy. Think back. Think back a few chapters. Okay? Think back with me. Um, did Abraham prove himself to be a military force? Yes, no? Yeah, when? When Sodom and Gomorrah were invaded by those five different kings, and those, those city-states had been overcome, who's the one that went into battle with the marauders and beat them in battle? It was Abraham. 
that he took on an, an alliance that was in that region. And so Abraham has got enough men, and he's a powerhouse. He's a, he's, a, an, he's a country unto himself. He's a force unto himself. And now these guys, and remember, in, this, in the description, it's talking about Abimelech and his general. For whatever reason, he comes into the story that he's mentioned. But there is an idea that they don't want to be in com- conflict. Anything else from Abraham, that if you knew any of his story, any of what had happened, that you might think, hmm, he, his God has a special hand upon him by the birth of the baby. But think what happened just a couple chapters before that shows the power of heaven into this whole region. A community event. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. And they know that the fire came down from heaven. They know that this is a heavenly destruction. They understand that this was something phenomenal. And the God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he is blessing this man. Wouldn't you want to be in this man's favor? Okay, when you start thinking about what's been happening in your region over the last 15, 20 years, this guy has won incredible, incredible battles. His God has wiped out major cities in the region. This guy, his God, is blessing him abundantly. I want to have a good time with this guy. I want this fella to be an individual that is on my side. In fact, I don't only want him to make a treaty with me. What did the passage say? Treat me and who else? He's interested in not just himself, but the next generation. He wants this to pass on, and he is saying, God has blessed this guy. I want him, who this has a large clan, I want him to be my friend, not my opponent. So let's make a deal, okay? Let's do the Monty Hall thing. Let's come up with some type of treaty. Let's come up with a plaque, uh, a pact of some sort. And whether or not servants have said, I don't know, maybe he's heard servants say, you know what God told my master? My master, I'll bless them that bless you and curse them that curse and so there's all these incentives for him to say, I want to make a deal with, uh, with Abraham. And so he does. And Abraham then agrees and says to him, he says, I'll swear. I'll make this pact with you. I'll make a treaty with you. And I'll have some time where the, you know, I will absolutely agree to be friends with you. Now here's a question that I want to ask for a second. Okay? Abraham is making a peace treaty with pagans, with, with somebody who's lost, somebody who is, use the term, unsaved. Is that appropriate? Is that proper? Should we be respectful? Should we, how do we treat the people that we work with, the people in business, the people who we might have community dealings with? Should we have community dealings with them? What does the scripture say in this regard? Should we just totally isolate ourselves from people that we would work with or in the community? And so some people would say, oh yes, they're, they're, uh, they're not like us. They're not born again like us, so we shouldn't even respect them. They're not born again like us, so we shouldn't even give them the time of day. Is that true? Is that proper? Is that the way we should be? I go to the New Testament and I find these comments. That it says we're to walk in wisdom towards those who are without. Okay, and with that wisdom, he goes on and he says, we're to walk honestly towards them that are without. Just because an individual may not be a churchgoer doesn't mean we can take advantage of them and be dishonest with them. 
that we have the right there to fleece them. That's inappropriate. That's improper. In fact, the Scriptures goes on and says that those who are qualified for church leadership, they have to have a good report of them that are without the body. That they have to be individuals who, who have integrity, individuals who have good reputation even in their financial dealings with the, with the world so that they're, they're not hucksters. We read elsewhere in Romans, it says that when dealing with those who are enemies, those who are not part of the church movement, he says, recompense to no man, evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men, in all relationships. We'll take it a step further. If possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. And that includes your neighbors, your co-workers, that includes the community leadership. And he goes on, he says, and if your enemy Somebody who doesn't believe what you believe. If they hunger, should we just say, God's, God's damned you in the hunger, so I'm not going to help you. That's not what the passage says. If your enemy hungers, what are we to do? Okay, we're supposed to have, we're supposed to have a kindness towards them and integrity towards them. If they thirst, what do you think it says? Give him drink. Okay. And so the idea that we have in Scripture is that idea that we're supposed to be careful. In fact, when it comes to our business dealings, when it comes to our work, he says, exhort the servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things. Not arguing, he goes on, not purloining or pilfering or taking things, but showing all good fidelity that you may adorn the gospel the doctrine of the gospel. So he's talking in the sense of what happens with co-workers who are unsaved? What happens with, with employers who are unsaved? We are to work, we are to act, we are to conduct ourselves in such a way that we don't hinder the gospel, but what do we do instead? We make the gospel look more believable. We make the gospel look more beautiful. We adorn the gospel by you and I complementing the idea of righteous living by actually being a righteous co-worker, being a righteous neighbor. And so in our public life, we're supposed to be upright. We're to be honest. There's a story that goes around. This is uh, decades old. About a, um, a young girl who goes to revival meetings in Britain. She gets born again. She's coming to this church and, and going for a while, but she's not the sharpest individual, and so she's having a troubled time learning the Word of God. She has a troubled time reading the Word of God, and yet she comes after several months and she says to the church leadership, I'd like to follow the Lord and believer's baptism. And so they're inquiring, they're asking her. They say, well, how do you know you're born again? You, you don't know much Bible. You don't give much for a Bible answer. And she says, oh, I know I'm born again. I absolutely know I'm born again because before, she said, I never swept underneath the furniture. And she says, now I sweep under the furniture. And I no longer sweep the dirt under the rugs. I pick up the rugs and sweep them. To her, that was her evidence that she has changed. And you know what? That's true of a lot of people. That's true of a lot of people, that the change about how we work, how we act, how we, how we interact with other people. Here's Abraham, who's doing business dealings, and he's been a little bit of a huckster before. He had ruined his testimony. He's trying to recover that testimony. And so he's trying to live in harmony at Beersheba, saying, okay, uh, I've had some family conflicts, and now I've got some work conflicts. And I've got to try to resolve these work issues with others. What do I do? And so what happens in the next couple verses shows that this fella is working at harmony by doing three things, by employing three different attitudes or actions. What he does, first of all, 
is he agrees to the peace treaty. But to get the story, I want you to understand what happens. He says to Abimelech, I'll give you a treaty, but we've got a problem. Look at the problem that is described. It says in verse 25, Abraham reproved Abimelech because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. Now we read further down in the end of verse 30 that Abraham, his men had dug that well at Beersheba. That they were the ones who founded it, where they were stopped. And so they had digged the well, dug the well. They then had, pre- had built it up. And now Abimelech's servants come by and they take it over. There's a violence that has taken place. Maybe that's why Fecal is mentioned in the idea that he and his troops were engaged somehow in some type of a conflict. We don't know any other details, but there was violence. There was activity that was taken. And Abraham is saying to Abimelech, I'll make a treaty with you, however, we've got a problem. We've got this unresolved conflict. And so he brings it to Abimelech's attention that his servants had taken it away. And notice what Abimelech says in verse 26. He said, I didn't know what was done. Neither did you tell me, neither did I hear about it until today. And then his comments as you go on is, gives the impression that Abimelech returns the well to Abraham. What does that teach me about Abraham? In his dealings with somebody who's an outsider of the faith, how does he deal with them? Well, there's thoughts that we want to deal with, but I want you to see all this. That this is something very serious to Abraham because water is important. It doesn't come from the spigot. Remember, this is is life and death in this region. They've got to have the water. And so he's going to say, okay, let's settle the matter. And what stands out to me is this, that in dealing, when it comes to a conflict, he's honest about it. He's very honest about it. Now, the honesty is in this fact that he tells Abimelech there's an offense, there's a problem between the two of us. He doesn't pretend, he doesn't stew about it, he doesn't act and just kind of just shut down, but he states, here's the issue. We've got a problem, a business problem, we've got an issue, we've got to deal with it. And so he's going to try to resolve it. He's going to deal with it when the opportunity arises, and he doesn't look at Abimelech and say, let's just discount you, I don't need to respect you, we can just, you know, not even deal with it. He looks at him as an individual that he treats with respect and say we ha- says we have a problem. And so there's an honesty that is dealt with in saying let's try to reorganize, reconvene re, uh, this situation and take care of it. Isn't it true? Most conflicts go back to a lack of communication. I think that's true of most of our family conflicts. It's true of most of our business conflicts. And part of it is because we have different expectations than what that person is producing. And sometimes they don't even know the expectation we have. And we get upset with them because they didn't do something that they should have known they were supposed to do. Well, how do they know if you don't say anything? How do they know that it's a problem if you don't say anything? Have you ever been on the end that somebody has told you that they're upset with you and you don't have a clue that you did something to bother them, to upset them? And yet they're angry with you because you should have known. And you go, how do I know? How do, how do I deal with it? We're prone to do one of two things. If we're not open, if we're not going to try to resolve the conflicts, then usually we end up attacking people privately. That seems to be the tendency because of our sin nature. That if we don't have enough, I'm going to use the word boldness. If we don't have, and I think the better word is, if we don't have enough character to deal and say, here's an issue, here's a conflict, then our lack of character gets us to fight and sabotage and attack behind people's backs. And that's inappropriate. 
whether saved or unsaved, that's wrong. We shouldn't be doing that. What we should be doing is, is talking to the individuals and getting the facts. In fact, sometimes, has it ever happened to you? You've gotten upset with somebody and you only find out later that you didn't have all the facts. That there was something totally different. You misread. You misunderstood. You didn't, you didn't give them the benefit of the doubt, but it bothered you. And so what we need to do is we need to deal with the issues. There needs to be a sense of honesty in our business dealings. That what we want to do is we want to deal with known offenses. Not pretend they don't exist because they'll fester and they'll foster other type of wrong attitudes. But let's be honest. Now something else that stands out. Not only is he honest about dealing with it, but he's honorable. He's honorable in this business dealing. So he's honest. He's saying, Abimelech, before we can do this, we've got to resolve this conflict. Then Abimelech says, okay, let's settle it. I'm giving you back the well, which he does as you read on. And then it says in verse 27, Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech. And both of them made a covenant. What does that mean? What do you know from Old Testament ways of doing a contract? What would explain that he gave them some oxen and some of these other animals. What's that? Okay, he paid for them. Okay, he's paying for them. Do you remember? Do you remember? There's not only a payment, but what could also happen when they make a covenant? Okay, what would they? What could they do with animals? We saw this happen in chapter 15. They sacrifice the animals. What do they do with the animal? They cut the animal in half, and then whoever's making the contract, what do they do? They walk through the halves of the animals to basically, what are they saying? The, the, again, this is, this, we don't do it this way. This isn't the way you go. You don't go to the lawyer with your sheep and slaughter it on his table. Okay, so this is weird to us. But not back in that time. What, did they, what would they do? They would walk through it. And what's the symbolism? If I don't, if I don't keep my promise then I can be cut in half. Okay. That, that, it's that whole idea that says, you know, um, you know, what's the little ditty kids would say? No, no, not the sticks and stones, but I forget how, how we used to say it in town. But it was the idea of, I'm bringing upon myself a curse if I, if I don't keep my word. That I could have some harm done to me. That's Abraham. What he's doing is he's providing the sheep. Now, here's the part that, that strikes me odd. Why is Abraham providing the sheep? Why is he? He's not the one who asked for the treaty. Who did? Abimelech. But who's the one providing the animals for the treaty? It's Abraham. Okay. Why do you think Abraham's doing that? Does Abraham have more of a burden to prove himself trustworthy? Because he took advantage of Abimelech once before. Did he not? That he had lied. So here he is in his honorable dealings. He's going to go and do what is upright, what is legal per the culture. Okay? I'm not advising you to go and get your ox and your land, you know, your sheep and take them. You know, we're signing on the house. Let's take this animal and slaughter it here on the front porch. I'm not advising that. But back in those days, what he's doing is he's saying, okay, even though it's going to cost me something, I am going to do what is appropriate to show that I am really trying to be the honorable one here. I'm going to be the one that's going to keep my word. I'm the stranger here. You're not the stranger. This was your territory. This was your land. And I am willing to put myself on the line to show you how serious I am that I will make this treaty with you. I will be upright with you and I will not try to pull your leg anymore. 
and I'm going to keep this treaty, and we're going to have peace between us. And so he goes the extra mile, quite frankly. What he does is he's, he's dealing with an upright, uh, in an upright fashion with somebody who's unchurched and non-believer because he wants to make sure this man knows he is going to be one of ethics because before he did some questionable things but now he's going to make sure that he's doing the upright thing and the honest thing there is something else that happens here he's very humble in his dealings but I think the humility shows up in this regard notice the next phrase the next phrase he not only gives him the ox and the, the sheep for the purchase covenant but then he verse 28 what else does he put out there He set seven ewe lambs. Okay, now we're not talking full-grown sheep. We're talking lambs. And he says, and he put them by themselves. And Abimelech doesn't understand this because it's not part of the deal. And Abimelech even says to him, what do you mean by these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he goes on, he says, these seven ewe lambs shall you take of my hand that may be a witness unto me that I dig this well. Even though you don't expect me to pay for this, even though I don't have to pay for this because squatters rights, I am going to go the extra mile. And I'm going to give you these as a bonus gift for the idea that you and I are going to be handling things. Very humble. Very humble situation. Not like the one guy I was reading about. Young Gloria goes in town, and he's a real proud, arrogant young man. He's been boasting to all his friends that he's going to open up his doors, and he's going to have people flocking to his doors because he's such a really good student. He's such a really good lawyer. And so he's been bragging, 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 opened up the doors, had a shingle put out, and nobody came the first few days. Nobody showed up. Until one day, all of a sudden, you know, like that second, third day, here comes a guy walking in with a satchel, and he goes, oh, man, I got a client. I've got to impress the client. So he picks up the phone and he starts talking real loud voice while the man's walking into his office there. He says, yeah. he says, no, no, I'm not going to take your case. My, load, my workload is too heavy and I'm not going to touch the case for under $5,000 and hangs up. May I help you? The man is shocked, just looking at him, stunned. He says, yeah, he said, uh, I came here to hook up your phone. You know, there, there you have, you know, one of those proud, arrogant moments that yeah, kind of puts you in, a, in an embarrassing spot. Well, Abraham is going the opposite. Abraham is saying, okay, I'm not going to put myself in an arrogant spot. In fact, I'm going the extra mile. I am, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give this fellow these extra lambs. And obviously this is not part of the deal. We've already mentioned that. And he says, I'm going to make them for the payment for a well that I already dug. I did the work. It's my well. But I'm going to pay you for it because it's part of this, this whole thing. And he goes, the, he, he, he goes that extra mile. And Abimelech takes the payment. Okay, so Abimelech isn't shy about accepting it. And that's where we get the name of Beersheba. The word literally means well of seven. The well of seven. The seven what? Okay, the seven lambs that were given for him to purchase this. This is a reminder that he's gone the extra mile, that he's been very honorable in dealing with somebody, that he's been very humble, that he has, he has raised the ethical barrier to its peak in dealing with somebody who is in a business situation, which is very, very commendable that Abraham is doing all this. In fact, Here it is, Abraham, it's not about Abraham getting, getting, getting. He wants the land, he wants the well, that's important to him. And he's dug it, but he's willing to pay, he's willing to commit himself, he's willing to make this peace treaty and to go the extra mile with this other fella. So in business dealings, what a testimony, what a way to handle things. But there's a reason that this all happens. 
He's got conflicts going. Comes to Beersheba, he's parking there, he's dug the well, and then all of a sudden the conflicts arise in his home after things go well. And then things are going well, but all of a sudden they have problems at the well, and there's conflicts. How is it that this place that he finds to be his refreshing spot, how is it that he's able to keep it together and not get frustrated that there's a conflict during his vacation time? That there is a conflict with his family household. How is it that all of a sudden there at Beersheba, he doesn't react like he's reacted before? Where before when there was conflict between his wife and Hagar, he gave in. When there was threats, when there was conflicts and intimidation, he lied about his wife. What's going on different here? It shows up in part of this text. As the story just winds down, it tells us a little about what's been going on in Abraham's mind. What's been going on in his life. Watch where it concludes. He says, he called the place the well of sevens because, verse 31, there they both had made the covenant. Thus they made a covenant at the well of sevens. Then Abimelech rose up and Phicol, his chief captain and host, they returned to their land. Okay, everything's hunky-dory. Abraham planted, anybody have another word for a grove? Yeah, yeah. You don't know what that is? Neither do I. Okay, he says he planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the God of Everla- the, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in this region many days. Let, let me point out something. The reason he's able to handle conflict in home and at work is because he found harmony with God. He had a harmonious relationship going with God where there wasn't conflict taking place. In fact, what he does is when he buys this, he, buy, he builds this or he plants this tamarisk tree. It's a hardwood tree. It's like a cypress, one of the hardest woods in that area. And so he plants this tree, this grove of trees, which could be a couple of them, uh, a few of them, that he plants. And he's using this tree for a reason. It is symbolic. It is a reminder. It is a token to give him a sense of what does he mean? What does God God mean to me. And this is going to be his oasis. This is going to be his shaded area where he's going to continue meeting with the Lord. And by the way, he's going to stay here for a number of years. When he sojourns many days, notice the next passage. It's when his son is a teenager. So he's going to park here, and this is going to be home for a while where he's going to talk to the Lord. And he picks this particular tree, and I think it's pointed out for this reason. It's a demonstration, it's an illustration of God's character, how steadfast God is, and also of of Abraham's commitment. It's kind of like, not the same thing, but similar. Baptism has a dual meaning. Baptism, when you get baptized, shows the work that God has done, but it also shows your commitment to God. Right? Yes? You're supposed to say yes, that's right. Okay, it's both of those things. And so here he's doing that same thing. He's showing, okay, this is the way God has treated me. In fact, he even talks about how he speaks with God here. Where it makes that comment in verse 33, it says, he called there on the name of the Lord. In the Hebrew, it is the idea he kept on calling time and time and time again, not just once. But now there's an ongoing calling upon the Lord at this spot. This oasis place where he's had some conflicts becomes a place where he is going to have continuous harmony with the Lord. In fact, he stays there a long time. He's learned, I don't move until God tells me to move. I need to go when God tells me to go. And so he stays there. He's going to park there. In fact, what happens in the next chapter, he is going to be asked to make the greatest life commitment possible in, in to show 
show his dedication to the Lord. And it's going to come at that moment when he's at Beersheba that God's going to say, I want you to take your son, your only son, and sacrifice your son. And we got to get into how in the world could God ask him to do that. But God does. And it's all here at Beersheba where he has planted his feet real deep in the Lord. That is enabling him. That is helping him to handle the conflicts. By the way, isn't that true of your own life? In order to handle conflicts at home, you've got to be planted in the Lord. In order to handle conflicts at work and not explode, not, not you know, fly off, the, you've got to be planted in the Lord. Hey, let's make an observation about this planting in the Lord. It is good to have a place. It is good to have a place where you can be refreshed daily by meeting with God. If you have a place that helps you to be consistent, if you have a place, in fact, not only a place, but can we expand it? It's good to have a time. Where you know this is my time with me and God. This is my place with me and God. Some place where you can be alone, refreshed, and have that time of communion and recommitment to the Lord on a daily basis. It's usually not a good place for most people to do it in front of the TV or the computer. Okay? Unless you're using the computer for your, your devotional your work. But usually those things get distraction. It's probably not a good to place to do it while you're driving down the highway. Okay? Um, so what, what it is is to say, okay, I need a spot. I need a place. I need somewhere where I can be me and God. Okay? Why is that? Because you need those moments every day to see yourself as you are. To look in what does the Bible describe itself? To look in the mirror and see what you really are. You need these moments to get to know God more. To just think about who he is and what he is and how gracious he is and how good he's been. To, to keep that harmony in your life. To reflect on what am I doing? Where am I going? How, how are my relationships with other people? By the way, true or false, if my relationship is bad with Deb, does that affect my relationship with God? Absolutely. And if my relationship is bad with anybody, if I have ought against you, Barb, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to leave my gift and be reconciled, then come back and worship God. And so there needs to be these moments where in order to keep harmony in our life, in order to get to know God more, in order to rethink our daily actions, to reflect and say, okay, I know I can justify myself in my own mind. Okay. I'm really good at that. I, I don't know about you. I can justify all my actions. But then when I get alone with the Lord, sometimes they don't seem really justifiable. And at that time of refreshing, that time of reflecting, that time of rehearsing, that time of just getting alone at the, my Beersheba is so important. I think it's important as well to plant some type of a reminder. That reminder might not be the tree, Okay, But it might be something that you say, okay, I'm going to plant as a reminder. It might be a note in your Bible. It might be some token that just reminds you, I made a commitment to the Lord. This is what I did, and this is, this is, you know, this is a step I took. And I, and, and I look at that, and that reminds me. In fact, I think another thing you can add to this time of reflection, this time of refreshment, I think it's a good thing at times to give God some names that are personally from your own heart. The Almighty God. 
to reflect on who he is and how he's uh, impacted your life and just looking at his virtues, looking at his characteristics and reflecting upon them, remembering them throughout the day where he did, he's saying, okay, this is the spot where I'm calling the everlasting God. Has he already thought of God as being immortal and everlasting? Sure. But now he brings it up and he gives him him the name of it just to help him to realize God is fixed and solid like this hardwood tree that's there for generation after generation after generation. Here's the bottom line. You and I, we need those times. We need the Beershamba moments. The conflicts are good for us. They test us. They help us to grow. But they aren't going to be successful if we don't have that time of harmony with the Lord in our Beershamba day by day. And it's easy to come on a Wednesday night and say, okay, you know, let's do the prayer time. But the reality gets to what are you doing on your daily basis? Do you have that time with the Lord? Do you have that, that recreation with the Lord? Do you have that refreshing moment with the Lord on a regular daily basis? You need it. I need it. Abraham, after walking with the Lord for all those years, being called the friend of God, the man of faith, he still needed those moments. He still needed that oasis. And so do you and I on a daily basis.